morning. It's great to be with you. I think this is the first time that I'm preaching for more than 50 people in a long time. <laughs> in our church, we are still, um, you know, having the whole, all the limitations because most of our people um, are not very happy with the situation at the moment. Um, but I'm happy to be with you in a bigger group. It's wonderful. Uh, and as you were talking about uh, being Dutch, uh, I have to say it's, it's really true that the Dutch government at the moment is not very good. Uh, my uh, mother-in-law, she is 85 years old, she's Dutch, she was uh, born in Holland, lived through the Second World War, and she was married with my father-in-law in Switzerland, and she went to the Dutch embassy in Bern, and they said to her, I'm sorry, you're not Dutch anymore. Just like that. So, <laughs> crazy, you know, cute old lady, all her life spoken Dutch. Just like that. Uh, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to have a political speech about Holland today. <laughs> yeah, that will not be pretty. Um, yeah, so 20 years ago, I, I did one of my first uh, mission trips, and this mission trip went to South America, to Colombia. If any one of you have been there, it's a wonderful country, very beautiful. And uh, I took the plane from London to Venezuela. I, I remember arriving in Caracas. It's very, very nice before the whole country went down the hill. And uh, I took a plane from there to Medellin in Colombia, where my friend lived. And he waited for me there at the airport. I arrived. It was quite an adventure. I was 21 years old. I didn't speak any Spanish. And, uh, but he was there waiting for me. We took the bus uh, down into the city because the, the airport is on the mountain, you go down, and then the city is really, really big, actually, and very, uh, very pretty, and you have those uh, neighborhoods going up the side of the mountain, very, very high, actually, and very steep as well. So I went with my friend, and the bus we were in went higher and higher and higher up the mountain until eventually we stopped, and we were in this neighborhood, kind of run-down neighborhood, and... Uh, I was very tired, jet lag, etc. So I went to bed. Next day, during the day, I, we hear these noises outside. Bang, 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 you know, and I'm, I'm Dutch. I'm thinking this is fireworks, you know, they're having fun. Uh, but soon, <laughs> they were like, no, 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 this is not fireworks. This is the gangs fighting with each other, shooting at each other. Uh, so that was a bit of a shock for me. And then one night, the sound got very loud. And it was like, bah, 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 and it was in the street right in front of us. They were shooting with machine guns. So we were all flat on the floor to make sure that if the bullets would come through the window, they wouldn't hit us. Uh, so it was quite uh, scary. And my friend had not told me this before. He invited me. <laughs> so then I found out that it was not just wise to go outside during the evening, but also during the day. Why? Because my face is nice and white, and I look very Dutch, and when I went into the neighborhood, they were afraid that I would be kidnapped, because, you know, at that, at that time, this is what the FARC was doing, kidnapping Westerners for money. So, it was not really fun for me, as you can imagine, sitting in this house. They were scared of me even to go outside during the day, and for sure not at night. And um, then a few days later, I got a food poisoning, so all the tacos, you know? And uh, so there I was in Colombia, in a country where I did not speak the language, where nobody spoke English, let alone Dutch, sick by myself in bed for a week. And as you can imagine, I was starting to feel quite depressed. 
Now, of course, objectively speaking, my suffering was not very bad. But this is the thing about suffering. It's always subjective, isn't it? Your suffering is always the worst because it's you who suffer. So I was suffering and it was actually in this time that I was reading this letter of Paul and it really spoke to me. And I was also uh, listening to this song from a Canadian worship leader, and it's like, I am blessed, I'm not cursed. Uh, you know, it's, you, you might know it if you hear it. And I got a lot of comfort from this chapter, actually, because here Paul talks about his sufferings. And actually his sufferings are somewhat of a badge of honor for him. So I was like, here I am suffering. This is actually a good thing for, you know, somebody who would like to be a missionary. So uh, there I was, and there was this uh, scripture that was really giving me hope. So I'm very happy to be able to talk about it a little bit with you today. Um, I think since it's a series that Martin has already explained a bit the context of the letter, so I'm not going to go through all the context again. But just to highlight a few things that are, understand, uh, that are important to understand this passage, um, you might know Paul wrote the first letter to Corinthians, and then uh, when he had written this first letter, the people in Corinth didn't put it into practice. So Paul was not very happy with this. He was in Ephesus, so he went for a crisis visit to Corinth, and he said, you know, why are you not putting into practice what I'm telling you? And apparently this visit was quite painful for Paul, and apparently the church actually kind of stood up against him and attacked him even openly and um, did not respond to his warnings. So then Paul goes back, he writes another letter, which he called the letter of tears. He mentions in 2 Corinthians th uh, 3, um, this letter we don't have by the way. And apparently the Corinthians did respond to this letter and now Paul is writing them another letter in response to that. So it's actually the third letter. And uh, well, why is this important to know? Well, one of the issues in Corinth was actually apart from the sexual immorality, which I think we all know about, there were false teachers. And false teachers were gaining influence. And these false teachers, they seem to have cast doubt on Paul, saying Paul is not a real good teacher or he is not even an apostle. And it is actually this, what Paul is trying to do in this letter is to say, no, I am a real apostle, I am a real teacher and preacher of the gospel. So he's actually trying to make the point that he is an authentic minister of the gospel. And if you go to the second slide, uh, Paul explains, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in trickery nor distorting the word of God. The key word here is panurgia, this is the Greek, the word trickery. Um, it's somewhat uh, translated differently in the translation you were reading just now. But it is used in the New Testament to explain a cunning use of words to suit one's purposes. We could translate it as sophistry, crafty massaging of the words to suit one's agenda, to gain a following with little regard for the truth. A cynic might say a political speech, fake news. But Paul says he's not like this. They are not like the fake preachers, the crooks 
who twist words for their own purposes. Actually, Paul does not distort the word of God. And this word, dolio, to distort, it means uh, to make false through deception or to deceive or to adulterate something. So Paul says, when I'm preaching, I give you the full truth. Like we say in Dutch, he doesn't put water with the wine. When you get him, you get the open proclamation of the truth. And this commends him to every person's conscience. If you go to the next one. And Paul hopes that this conscience um, will testify to the fact that he is telling the truth. So he hopes that people will know when they hear him, he speaks the truth. He has nothing to hide. And this is what he says, before God, in the sight of God. So he's a man of integrity. But, and this is the next part, even though Paul is open in his preaching, uh, he has nothing to hide, doesn't mean that everybody receives uh, his preaching. Some people do not receive it because uh, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, why, why does Paul feel the need to say this? Well, most likely, people had been accusing Paul and saying, well, your teaching, your preaching is so obscure, your teaching is so weak, maybe, uh, you know, like you don't have enough conversions or there's not enough people at your altar call, you know? Paul, what's the deal here? People are not responding. And Paul says, no, this is not because of me, of my preaching, but because the gospel is veiled for some people. The God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelieving. And this word now, nous, huh, in, in Greek, Psycholo psychological faculty of reason, understanding, thinking. This has been blinded. Um, and I think this is why they're also using this word kalupto, which means hidden or veiled, which we know from the word apokalupto or apocalypse, which is revelation, revealed. So it's the opposite, opposite of revealed. For some things, for some people, the gospel is hidden. It's veiled. Now, of course, here we can go into a whole preaching on why is it, why is it veiled? You know, is it predestined? But we're not going there today. We don't have the time. Uh, but it is a very interesting discussion. But I think it is true that I have also preached and some people, you can see, they're just not getting the truth. They're not getting it. Their mind is veiled. Anyhow, uh, Paul's team does not need to use clever technique to capture their audience. Because, and if you go to the next slide, Paul does not preach himself. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. So why does he say we are not preaching ourselves? Well, probably the false teachers, they were preaching themselves. They were probably building their own brand, you know. Dionysius Ministries, you know, come to me, buy my latest scroll here. You know, this is kind of the, the type of teachers maybe that were there. They were pushing their own agenda. And this was not uncommon in the Greco-Roman world. With uh, rhetorical skills, one could build up a career. And it's still not uncommon today, unfortunately, in the body of Christ. So, Paul preaches Jesus as Lord. And this Christ Jesus as Lord is one of the central confessions of the church, of the early church. Always when Peter preaches, he says, Christ Jesus is Lord. And this confession that Christ Jesus is Lord in the Roman Empire was also getting the church in trouble. Why? Because 
Caesar was Lord, not Jesus, but now Paul says, Jesus is Lord, all should submit to him and become his bondservants, just as him, just as he is Jesus' bondservant. Paul now continues and uh, he says a powerful statement that the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ. The gospel shines in our hearts. So the, the, the prince of this world blinds the, the, the minds and the hearts, but the gospel shines in our hearts. And the word is literally lamp, lampo, to shine. Um, and the gospel shines on the darkened mind. And what do we receive? Photismos, light, where we have the word photo. Huh? And we are enlightened. And enlightened with what? With gnosis, knowledge, which we know from the word agnostic, as somebody who doesn't know. We receive knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, this knowledge is not just intellectual knowledge. This is very important. There is a cognitive element, but there's also a relational element. It's not just knowing something about someone, but also knowing someone. Uh, it's knowing someone from their presence. In this case, Jesus, this is the heart of Paul's preaching, that we may know the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the word proso, prosopon, face, which I didn't write on there, but uh, can also be translated as presence, is very important, because Paul often quotes Isaiah, and in Isaiah, it very often says, the Lord or God has turned his face away from you. But here in Christ, God's face is turned towards us. This is very profound. This is the heart of the, of the gospel. We see God's glory in the face of Christ. We can contemplate on the face of Christ. Or to say it more in an evangelical way, we spend time in the presence of Jesus before his face. Here, the curse is reversed and we are transformed into his likeness. So this is what Paul talks about. This is the gospel. But this beautiful, glorious news, the redemption of God in Christ, comes to us, and if you go to the next one, in jars of clay or earthen containers, as my translation said. Why does it come in jars of clay? Because the... Greatness of the power of God will be not from ourselves. So Paul compares himself to a clay pot, a skuyos. And this was something very common in the culture. You know, like a Tupperware you know, bucket that you just buy anywhere. <laughs> and that you, know, throw, you throw away easily as well. Something fragile, something very common. Not particularly pretty. But within there is the tesoros, the treasure. Um, and this word treasure, we know this, of course, in our culture as well. So what Paul is saying that is that the messengers of the gospel are fragile, easily broken, but this makes the transforming power of the gospel even greater. And this is really of comfort to me, to be honest, <laughs> because very often I do feel like that. So if you go to the next slide, then Paul, he, he, he kind of shows how broken he really is, and he gives what we call a, a catalog of hardships. And this is not the only place where he does that. He does this in numerous places. And he says, in every way we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but not crushed, despairing, abandoned, destroyed. And it's a very interesting uh, literary form. Um, 
to use it like this, and this in every way, actually it belongs to every word in the first uh, sequence. Uh, so the word afflicted, it actually means uh, different types of pressure. Paul has uh, experienced many types of pressure, but he has not been crushed. Crushed meaning, meaning being in a small space where there is no, out, uh, no, no escape. And Paul always had an escape. And we can think of Acts 18, where Paul is attacked by the Jews, but the proconsul leaves Paul in, in, in peace so he can minister longer. Uh, the second one, perplexed but not despairing, is actually a play on words in Greek, which is a bit difficult to translate, but we could say confused but not confounded, or at a loss but not lost. Uh, so it's a bit of a play on words, but it means that Paul, there are things Paul doesn't understand, but it doesn't bring him to despair. And I think we can all relate to that sometimes, don't we? Where there are things we just don't understand, but it doesn't bring us to despair. The third one is, Paul is persecuted, but not destroyed. Well, Paul had endured slander, riots, imprisonment. He was lashed five times, beaten with the rod three times, was stoned and left for dead, and yet... He says he was never abandoned. It is a great testimony. And then the fourth one, struck down, is a term of wrestling or boxing. And so we could keep the boxing analogy. We could say he was knocked down but not knocked out. Pyle uh, might be thinking of the time he was stoned in Listre, left for dead, and the next day miraculously recovers and continues his travels. So he is struck down but not destroyed. So then Paul finishes this section a bit cryptically. If you go to the next uh, slide. He, it's a bit cryptic and I had really had to think about this. What does this actually mean? So he contrasts the theme of life and dead. He says, I carry around the dying of Jesus in order that the life of Jesus may be revealed. What does he mean by this? Well, first explanation is pretty straightforward. He, as a minister of the gospel, suffers, so the people who listen to him will have life in the gospel. So it's the apostolic suffering of Paul, which is also a sign that he is an apostle. But there are also some other lessons for us here. Uh, if we translate the dying of Jesus, that says there, the dying of Jesus as the, the physical dying experienced by Jesus, and the word here is actually necrosis, which we might know. Uh, it means the process of dying. We all experience this. Why? Because we're all going to die. I'm sorry, you came to church. This is probably not what you wanted to hear. <laughs> but it's true. We are all slowly dying physically. And uh, in our body, our earthen body will perish and it's actually good to be reminded of this sometime, the fact that we will all die someday. And it's actually very difficult for people, as you have seen in this time during the pandemic, people really panic when they're faced with this. But it's good to think about this. We all will experience this. But there's also a, a spiritual sense of the dying of Jesus. We as believers in a spiritual sense take part in Jesus' death in two ways, first in our justification, we die with Jesus like in our baptism and then we rise, but also in our sanctification where we daily mortify our flesh, we die to our sinful nature and we rise in the spirit. And I call this baptismal spirituality. Every day we die 
and we rise. While we are only baptized once, I believe we live our baptism spiritually every day. We die to our sin, we rise in the spirit. And just a, a small example of this in my own life. Um, the other day, I was preaching in our church and our neighbor, she really doesn't like us. And during the service, she started with a hammer drill, drilling in the wall next to us. So every time I was speaking, she started and it was very, very annoying, <laughs> almost impossible. So my colleague, who's from the Congo, went to her and asked her if she could please just postpone the work for half an hour until we were done. And actually she started insulting him and calling him a monkey, um, which was very, very offensive, insulting not just him, but half of our churches from Africa. Uh, so I was there, became a big deal, police came, got very angry, and I think, to someone <laughs> with some justification. And then we were together with the council of our church and we said, what can we do? My vengeful flesh, Peter, wanted to, you know, porter plainte, make a complaint to the police, call the 24 heures to say, you know, this is what's happening in the culture today. If you call something like this, this is a big deal. But we prayed and we felt we shouldn't do this. We should forgive her, we should continue, we should bless her. And I think there we really mortified our desire for vengeance, you know, to really get her, this lady, because she is so annoying. We say, no, we're gonna bless her. And I think, just a little, maybe somewhat silly example, but I think we all live this every day, where we mortify our sin and we rise in the spirit. And that's why I just took this book, which I wanted to show you. It's actually a new, um, edition of a book of John Owen of the 1600s, which is called Overcoming Sin and Temptation, and it is all about mortification of sin. So they have, um, you know, written it in proper English, not the old-fashioned one. Uh, so you can actually read it. But he says, the principal efficient cause of mortification of sin is the spirit. Mortification from self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of false religion. In other words, it is the spirit who works in us to mortify our flesh. It is not us who do it ourselves. But this daily cycle of dying and resurrection is really only a foreshadowing of the Christian hope. And if you uh, go to the next one, um, and that's what Paul says, because we know who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, we also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. You see, this is the basis for the faith of Paul to continue within all his suffering, through his suffering, because we have this hope of resurrection. And this is the, the Christian hope. The jar of clay will ch be changed into unbreakable crystal. And we might have our own catalog of hardships. I believe we all do. We might be afflicted. We might be persecuted, we might be struck down, but there is always hope. Paul was not crushed, why? Because Jesus was. Jesus was crushed, Isaiah says, he was crushed for our iniquities. You know, Paul did not despair, but Jesus did in the garden. In Gethsemane, he begged his father, please let this cup pass from me, but not your will, but not my will, but yours will be done. And finally, Paul was not abandoned, but Jesus was. The word that, Jesus, uh, that Matthew uses when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same word that Paul uses uh, 
where he talks, says he is not abandoned. You see, Paul was not abandoned by God. Why? We are not abandoned by God. Why? Because Jesus was abandoned by God on the cross. We should really let that sink in. He was abandoned. He suffered and he died. But he also resurrected as the first fruits. And as we take part in his death, we also take part in his resurrection. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself. Amen.